Welcome to the Emerging Minds Podcast. This podcast is part of a series called Listening to the Stories of Healing that explores the many diverse stories of First Nations peoples. We will look at the many diverse experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and how these narratives have shaped the amazing work that is happening in the First Nations communities across Australia. Here at Emerging Minds, we like to call it the secret garden. The stories and experiences that non-Aboriginal people don't always get to see or hear. Whilst these stories include sadness and hurts and sometimes can feel uncomfortable to listen to, it is through listening to these narratives that you will get a glimpse of the deep wisdom, knowledge and healing practices of families and communities and understand why our First Nations peoples are the oldest continuing culture in the world. Hi, I'm Rosie. Welcome back to the Listening of Stories of Healing podcast series. This is part two of our conversation with Judy and Carly Atkinson. We will be exploring the valuable work Judy and Carly are undertaking with organisations to embed culturally informed and trauma healing practices in their work. Carly, did you want to talk to me about the work you were doing with We Are Lee and Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal organisations? Both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations and also mainstream organisations. But all the organisations that we work for, um, particularly the, the non-Indigenous ones, there's, there's obviously non-Indigenous people working in those organisations. Mm-hmm. And so we do spend a lot of time running workshops uh, with non-Indigenous people who are working alongside or have some, some sort of um, area that, that connects back to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think that's actually really important. And we make sure that we send in um, facilitators that are Aboriginal so they can talk from their own, because we use story a lot, their own lived experience. And it's quite enlightening. I suppose it's, you know, some people might even call it the beginning phases of cultural safety or cultural competence or cultural knowledge, but we entwine that with the trauma-based theory. So it's incredibly enlightening for people that haven't had um, any education in school about what it is to be an Aboriginal person, what the history is. That's also part of what we do before we start to get into the trauma stuff. We ground it in the history. And, of course, we we do that more with non-Indigenous people so they've got a context to what that trauma looks like, particularly over the generations. And um, for some people, and actually for a lot of people, it's actually the first time they've heard the actual proper history. Even and it's for very people. Yeah, Even yeah, Aboriginal yeah, people. Yeah. And it really is quite confronting. But mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we work alongside Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. We need to do this together. We need to walk together. And we can't assume that there's this known knowledge because it's certainly not taught enough in school. That is so true, Carly. You spoke earlier about cultural competence and cultural safety. Do you want to explain this to our listeners a little bit about what cultural safety looks like? What does it feel like? I'll let mum answer this because she started to really unpack that at the beginning of the We Are Lead programs and she then moved that up to the concept of cultural fitness. So I get really kind of itchy when I hear people talking about cultural awareness. Mm. We've got to work well beyond cultural awareness now and it's the preferred term of a lot of government organisations who say, oh, you know, we've just got to do some cultural awareness training and you can do it online for now. That is bullshit. So... Cultural sensitivity is is kind of starting to be sensitive to the differences in cultures. 
even the differences in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, so let's just put Torres Strait Islander people aside for a while, even the differences in Aboriginal cultures because there's mm. a big difference between Bundjalung compared to being up in the Kimberleys, compared to being in Central Australia, compared to being in Tasmania because culture is a living entity. So in Tasmania, you've had the sealers come in and abduct the women and put them on. The, so the, 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 the culture that is there continues in that interaction between these abusive sealers and what's happening on people in Tasmania now. So that's, um, that's safety. The sensitivity and safety is about that. So how do you create safety in a room? So we come up with a whole a set of principles for participation, which we actually have people negotiate. That then brings us to the level of competency. But the big one for me is um, being fit. And it happened at the airport the other day. There was a lady standing in front of me and she said she'd just flown in from Central Australia and she's a nurse and she goes out to communities. And I told her what I do. Now, I didn't say I'm an Aboriginal person. So she would have assumed I'm an non-Aboriginal person. So she immediately told me some pretty horrible horror stories about sexual activities in a community that I knew, and I know that's not happening there. Being culturally fit is A, uh, being fit in ourselves to not take on stories that actually don't belong there, that's one thing, or to question stories and don't go into a crisis when you suddenly find something like the stories we've been sharing today. Um, being fit is, and I'll go back, I won't name the community, to knowing that in that particular community, there is a long history of sexual violence by white men on Aboriginal kids. It goes back four to five generations. So being culturally fit, and this happens with government departments, with the police, with government workers, oh, you know, this kid's behaviour is just part of this community. No, it's not. It's located in history and it's located in the colonisation of that place, which is continuing today. Colonisation has not finished. Mm. So being culturally fit is being strong enough to ask the hard questions. Mm. And I, I like to joke about, and not let your face go into an absolute kind of like, holy, when you hear something and it shocks you. So it's being responsive, core. isn't it? So, yeah. I mean, sometimes people talk about hold. being culturally responsive. So that's actually really important. It's moving beyond uh, cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity, even including cultural competence yeah. and actually being fit, being responsive to what's happening. But in, not putting blame on yeah. the stories you're hearing because that's what's happening yeah. in just about every place I'm working, whether it's the territory, the Kimberleys, by non-Aboriginal workers, oh, do you know what's been happening here? And they don't look any further than what's happening here now. So being fit is being willing to go back and really hear the hard stories and know that they may come from now I'm talking as though I'm a non-Aboriginal person. It may come from my culture. It may come, and this is the territory in particular in the 2007 intervention, don't blame the kids on the street in that town. Go back and dig under the surface and find those things. So being responsive is actually allowing, uh, not allowing your prejudices, your lack of willingness to look deeply at yourself but it's also up to us, going back to that, because I, st I still do like the concept of creating cultural safety. It is up to mm, us, for example, great. in the work that we do, um, you know, as an example, workshops is actually creating that safety. So it's up to, for example, 
uh, facilitators in this context mm. to go in and make sure sometimes the very practical things are done mm. around what safety looks like. So it could be an environmental thing. How is the room set up? Is there ways people can get out of the room if they need to? Is there a sense of um, harmony within the room? You know, you've got horrible noises going mm. on or fluorescent lights sometimes can yeah. really tick people or off. Two people working together. So the yeah. facilitator at that time keeps holding the space yeah. where she just nods to the co-facilitator who follows the person who's yeah. just gone out, those kinds of things. Having uh, food and water there and good food. So sometimes it's little stuff too, but those little stuff make the place feel, feel safe. And as mm. Mum said, you know, agreed upon principles, values mm. that you, you know, you've worked out yourself that you're not going to do. For example, what's in, what's, you know, set in the room stays in the room. Yeah. That, um, if or someone, not close down a conversation yeah, if you're uncomfortable. Yeah, if someone actually brings up something that's incredibly <clears throat> uncomfortable and it makes you uncomfortable, you don't close that down, that kind of uh, silencing, well, we can't talk about that, or that makes me feel uncomfortable, so you should stop talking about that. Mm. Actually, Or oh, this creating, is not the right place to talk about something. Yeah. It's always the right place. Yeah. And that's when, when you work with kids, it's exactly the same. It's just not shutting down the reality of the lived experience. And cultural safety for kids, um, and I was talking to you earlier uh, before about a school where they pretty much dismantled and rebuilt the classroom. They made it culturally safe. Do you want to describe that classroom? Give us a visual picture of what that looks like. Oh, it's just beautiful. So it was a normal school classroom, at, you know, desks all lined in a row, um, you know, fairly boring little classroom. They pulled the entire classroom apart. They put bean bags in there. They put wiggle chairs, bright colours. Um, they made special little spots in teepees where people could go and have time out if they felt like time out. They, would, they created themes, regular themes, and one of them was a jungle theme and they decorated the, the whole room with... Um, with animals related to the jungle that were hanging there. The kids then pretended to be those animals for that week or, or two weeks, I think it was on. Uh, it became a lounge room. It became a, a safe space. Yeah, a gorgeous, fun, happy, safe space. It wasn't this regimental classroom setting, which is not actually necessary. And this is these are primary school kids mm. and that's, that's what kids need. They need to be able to feel that way. And the change with just that environmental change not to mention all the other amazing changes that were happening with the teachers and how they were talking with the kids. Um, just the environmental change uh, made an enormous amount of difference. So when I said before, they might be little things, but they're big things. A space has to feel comfortable um, and appropriate. I actually saw one of the worst issues of racism that I can remember with the, my companion was Judy Knox. And she said, oh, I'll just go down and get us some food. And she walked into the shop. But this is what I was told later. And then she came back to me and her head was down and she was like really distressed. She said, uh, they won't serve me. Now, she's clearly an Aboriginal woman who looks like, a, you know, an Anna Pitinjara woman. And I said, what do you mean they won't serve you? She said, they're just, they're just ignoring me. I'm standing there and they're ignoring me. So I said, come on. So I walked into the shop with her and they immediately looked at me and said, can I help you? And I said, yes, you can. Um, my uh, work companion here. Um, and a colleague at the university, and I was being bitch, um, <laughs> has just come in here to get our dinner, but apparently uh, for some reason you are unable to serve her, so I come in to see why we can't get food. Now would you please serve her? Carly, is this an experience you've had before? We were in Megathara and um, we'd just arrived there and Grandpa took me into, we've probably only been there two days, we walked into a shop and... Um, 
I would say within five minutes, I was separated from him by the shopkeepers. And he was a big man, big hands. I remember looking out the shop door, thinking, why is Grandpop standing over there? And he looks really small all of a sudden. Yeah, they had assumed that this black man had taken this little what looks like a white girl off him. And I, yeah, I remember that at five, that really clearly just thinking, I'm a different colour to my grandpa. Hadn't mm. even considered it before. And that's how he was treated. This is an embodiment and it's mm. in the embodiment of our people right across the country, the, the, the shame. And I'm, I'm using that word a lot now, mm. the embodiment of shame. Had a long talk to Judy about this. She said, oh, shame yeah. is an Aboriginal, uh, you know, it's, it's the way we... Because I'd never seen things. Grandpa I said, no, shame this before. Is, this is a product of colonisation. Do not dismiss yeah. it as just being, oh, you know, oh, shame, shame job. No, that's not what it is. It's mm. the embodiment of deep shame. Thank you for that, Judy. Carly, do you want to talk to me a little bit? If you're working with a non-Aboriginal organisation and you are trying to give them tools to be culturally responsive and culturally safe, what are the things that you would be looking at? Yeah, look, first up, it'd be about taking them on a journey of self-reflection. Um, and we have a number of different activities and they're quite confronting. And I won't talk about the details of the activity because sometimes that can be a bit traumatic in itself. But, you know, the, everyone in the room agrees to do that. They, they have, you know, they have permission or they give us permission to do that. So firstly, we would actually get them to look at themselves, locate themselves and then locate themselves within the history that they're now being told, because it's incredibly important for them to understand that. Mum, you, I can see Mum in the side corner of no, my No, 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 I'm just smiling. Yeah. The number of white women have just burst into tears and cried, and this woman come in and she was a non-Aboriginal woman, and she started to cry and say how terrible history was, and, you know, and, and, and it was like she was taking power away from everybody in that room. And I said, well, I'll just give you one prescription. Look at yourself and do something about that. You can't change the world, but you can change you and then you will be able to hold the space for others. Mm. So it's about not playing, and I'm being harsh here, not playing victim, taking power away from the people who really need to have the work done. And I see that a lot, you know. Uh, Non-Aboriginal workers employed being paid three times as much as an Aboriginal worker would be paid or working with them because they're volunteer. And then they kind of get all kind of sooky and sorry and go, oh, you know, this is terrible, you know, history is terrible, look what it's done to you poor people. And I'm thinking, get over it. You've got a job to do here, you're being paid to do this job. Um, look at yourself. What is happening in you where you're playing the victim when victims have been named for you in this place mm. here now, the children, the young people. What are we as a collective going to do about that? Yeah, that's actually, there is a lot of looking after in organisations. There might be only, for example, an organisation might be 50 people in that organisation and two Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people working in that organisation. They end up having to hold all the other workers and that load, that cultural load, is just too much yeah. and that's something that we found we did a project a little while ago that lasted two years right across Australia with all the Aboriginal family violence and prevention legal services and the non-Aboriginal workers within those organisations, really good people, but they were having to be held by the Aboriginal workers and and the, wor the Aboriginal workers were looking after community, family, doing their own job and also doing that. So going back to what you were saying, it is very much about 
locating it in history, mm -hmm. doing some practical activities where it really mm. starts to kind of hit home what this is about, but from an empathetic connection, yeah? Because yeah. whether you're Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, there is something that someone can connect into, whether it's loss, grief, pain, whatever it might be, we do find a way so there's a connection. Remember, we're all sitting in circle and generally there's Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people sitting in that circle. And so using that circle, us not being the experts in facilitating that process, everyone in that circle are the experts. So that sharing of stories and the non-Indigenous people will start to share theirs too and connect in and then there's a relationship built between that. So it's really important in the work that we do, we actually build the relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous mm. through locating it in history yeah. and then actually feeling it, yeah, through activities. So there's a slightly different part of that as well. So it may be the lawyer or lawyers who are feeling very disempowered because the system itself has disempowered them. So that's a connecting theme between us all. Yeah, well, you know, you got this degree in law and you're a you know, legal person here. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you're feeling like you can't win a trick when you go into court. Yeah. So how about the two of us or the, all of us get together and we start to hit the judges and the magistrates about changing this system mm. because the system itself is enabling the violence, the abuse, mm. the trauma. And so that lawyer, for example, what Mum's saying about, and in relation to what I was saying before about uh, some of the services that we're working with out, um, particularly in remote, that non-Indigenous lawyer, just talking in general, so she might be young, she just finished her degree, and now all of a sudden she's working out in a remote community and the supports aren't there. And so the Aboriginal people, they hold back, but the organisation itself has set her up to fail. They have not given her the tools to be in that situation and then continue to be in that situation. So, and that's what Mum was talking about and, I'm, and we are Lee's really strong about. And I think there's a lot of organisations now that realise that systems transformation needs to happen. It's one thing saying that you're trauma-informed, but you need to be trauma-integrated. The whole system, the, you know, the policies, the procedures, everything that you have within that organisation has to reflect that trauma knowledge for your staff as well. You've got to look after your staff. And so you don't go and plonk some new graduate out on a remote community without any of the skills or any of that, um, that support and that self-support too, knowing uh, which is a reflective process. Yeah. It's, I, I really feel for those lawyers that have been putting mm. in those situations. But let me just draw this out a bit further. I think it's important for the kids. And I've written stuff about this so I can give you copies of this. It's actually in one of our packages. So a lawyer that I've been doing work with the lawyers in the uh, legal services. So this lawyer rings me and says, so-and-so is going to court on, money, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, would you be able to write a psychological assessment on her? And I said, no. What we need is to get the police records so that I can actually write a report to the courts that the legal system, the policing system, failed her totally. She was up on a charge of, uh, of hitting her ex with a, well, she wasn't her ex, with a, with a stick, with a baton. And so I went through 500 pages and condensed it down to five pa 10, nine pages for the magistrate. So the lawyer went, wow. You know, I mean, I hadn't even looked at this because I'd done the lost history map with the woman. It goes into court and the magistrate says, wow. Um, can I get a similar report on him? Because they hadn't charged him, they charged her. The police were now labelling her as a nuisance caller and she was running from him all the time so his violence on her was 
dramatic now I'm bringing the kids in she was terrified of what he could do to the kids because he was a drinker and when he um he had put out that the that he now had legal custody of the kids which was a lie and the police had written up in their reports but it was a lie but he was a drinker where he got people in to drink and the girls were there the nine and 12 year old girl was there all the time so she was terrified of their their sexual safety now well, now I'll go back to the lawyer she was going Wow, and she felt so good when the magistrate commended her on how she went in to draw out some other elements of this case, dismissed the case, sent, it, sent the young woman home again, but then asked why the police had not had him in and charged him for his breaching. So the police had acted really badly. I'm talking policing. I'm talking the, the lawyer. Let's put the lawyers here. The lawyer has asked for help, like give me a psychological assessment because she feels disempowered going into the court and having to speak to the magistrate. I do a, an assessment of what the police did not do well, which then calls for the police in that place, to in that state or the territory, to actually be re-educated. It goes in front of the magistrate. The magistrate goes, wow, I want records here. The magistrate then says, that will dismiss this, this charge, but we need more of these because we need to be able to send people to programs, not to prison. She spent nine months in prison on remand until she got up to court. So it's it's a complexity in it, but it means that we ourselves need to think about how we're going to respond to a request. Give me a psychological assessment. Why should I give a psychological assessment to a woman that the system itself has failed? Mm. Then I built the sense of competency in the lawyer. Mm. She was so pleased. Mm. And the magistrate, I educated the magistrate. These are all part of it. This comes back again to that, well, systems transformation is going to require that when people that work in any human service-related activities, whether you're lawyers, whether you're working in, you know, you know obvious ones, whether it's counselling, that the actual systems need to change and people that have those jobs, they have to be really thoroughly trauma-informed and trauma-integrated mm-hmm. um, because the, the, you're basically sending them out there without the skills and that's not helpful for them but it's also not helpful for the people they're walking alongside. Mm. Um, it really sets people up for failure. Yeah. So, you know, with this lawyer that Mum just talked about in that story, she had a bit of a light bulb moment. It's like, well, they didn't teach me this in law school. But, you know, when you think about it, you know, lawyers are working directly with people that are more, more than likely traumatised mm. or have complex trauma. So that should be a not, not an elective in law. It should be actually a core requirement and with doctors too and nurses anyone working alongside people it shouldn't be something that you just oh, I might I might train in that stuff after it should be core that is so true there are so many learnings that should be core material how would you bring all of that learning together I'm going to come back to where at New South Wales where we're living and we were I was pulling my hair out Margaret Hayes who I work with beautifully we knew that we had to do something more and the police were failing. So I started to find good police who would respond to the needs of children. And then somebody at a high level in the police in New South Wales decided to reinforce and to endorse that this was something they had to do. So right throughout Western New South Wales, we've been working with a really good group of uh, men and women who are doing some great stuff. However, uh, and this is so, we had a disclosure of a young person that there had been sexual abuse in the situation 
And I knew from previous experience, because one of the stories that we're sharing, and I can't remember whether it was the Lyrebird one or the one of these, uh, that sometimes the police come in and they don't actually do a good interview with the, so the, the young person might take off. But in this case, what I did is we, we got talking on the phone, Margaret Hayes and I, and I said, right, I'm going to make sure they do it right this time. So I ran the head guy and I said, you know what, this is your chance to show that you can really do a good job here. So he sent, the 2OC came in in that region in a pair of daggy old jeans and a T-shirt, sat on the floor with the young father and said, you know, well, how do you feel about them coming in? Because, you know, once they come in with their interview apparatus, their recording gear, it's very, very formal. I've sat through a number of those with young people. And they can't legally engage in trying to draw stuff out. But he sat on the floor with the young fella and the young fella said, yeah, yeah, you'll do it. And then they came in a few days later and they set up all the equipment and they did a brilliant interview. The young fella finished and he got and he walked to the door and he turned and he looked at them and he patted himself on the chest. He says, um, I'll call him Billy because that's my dad's name. Ah, oh, Billy, you did it right. You told the truth. Ah, oh, that feels so good. That's what he said. And he walked away. Now, the outcome of that is that he went back to a place where he had named the offender who was then interviewed and charged and is now on remand in prison for his sexual offences in the drug dealing that he does, but he uses that to negotiate sex with kids as well. Um, that that young fella decided to go home to that particular place and he started to talk to other young people about giving evidence to the police and every single child that he spoke to, young person in that area up to 14 years of age, had been so offended by that, had been offended against by that man. So now there's another investigation happening. So my choice is to work with find good cops, find educate. good police, education, find education. good, yeah, and work yeah. with them. There's some really good people working in the police. So in answer to your question, the first thing that came up for me was building trust. And how do we build trust? We build relationships. And that's exactly that example she gave so that that police officer you know, took off all the paraphernalia, which could be triggering, and had daggy old jeans on and that, and he sat down on the ground um, as a human-to-human -human building a relationship. And so that's it. So the more that we work with the police officers, and they need the training too, and, and a lot of them are getting the training, um, and, uh, you know, enlighten them around what, you know, what trauma is, what complex trauma is, what the history is, different ways that we can work with people that's um, not going to re-trigger them or, um, you know, so we want to resist, obviously, re-traumatising people in that process, which can happen a lot with interviews. Mm -hmm. I think we can work really well and side by side and build that trust. But, yeah, I mean, the police force certainly has, with our mob, uh, you know, a reputation and it's, you know, for good reason and it's happened over a long time, but we've just got to keep building that. And my cousin, so Mark, for example, um, he... He was, a, was he a detective he at some stage? He was the lead detective on, uh, investigative detective on child harm in Cape York. Mm. And he did it for 12 years and nearly went under and decided to make a oh, change. Uh, he, yeah, he saw the deaths of children and things that were really tragic. He's now a school-based police officer. Mm. He negotiated what he's doing and he takes young people out on canoe trips, hikes, 10-day hikes, you know. Mm. So he's actually building um, and he knows that country really well. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's not just the police we've got to build relationships with, it's doctors. Of course. It's social yeah. workers, it's psychologists yeah. who are rigid in what they've been taught when they go through yeah. university 
And we're opening up because the whole trauma story is just unfolding. It's not there. Mm. They weren't taught about it. But it's choosing to work with them. Yeah, and, it's, and as I said before, it's knowing that those skills, if they become core within all of those professions and others, that it actually gives, it, it, helps, it helps that worker. Yeah. Mm. It's of benefit for them so they know what's mm. going on, how to respond. Because I think sometimes the responses by various professions is just not knowing what to do. And so it, um, you know, it does come across as uh, yeah, not, not useful, but it's, it's a lack of knowledge too. Carly, you spoke earlier of a worker, Margaret, who does some amazing work. What is it that she brings that makes that possible? I've asked her that question many times and she says, Judy, the, the ingredient is just to love them. They might be the most crazy little hairy-ass kids doing horrible things, but she says you see beyond that and you know that there's something driving this behaviour. Love them because they will smell it on you. They will know it deep in their heart. And I see kids run up to her when they see her three or four years later and just run up to her and give her the biggest, Auntie Maggie, Auntie Maggie, and they just come out of detention, uh, uh, juvenile detention in some place. She just went back to where she works and she went down to the PCYC to see the kids because the police are now working on the weekend to keep the kids safe by running stuff with the community mm. over the weekend when the drugs hit town, right? And these, she walked in and these kids, who everybody would claim as the worst bunch of kids you could ever think in your life, saw her and they just went crazy. They ran up to her. They were calling out, Annie Maggie, Annie Maggie, I love you, I love you, you know? Um, and they were cuddling her and, and, and because she loves them, yeah. bottom line. That's something we crave in ourselves. The second thing is, and I've got, she and I have got a host of stories that she shared with me. Kids do some crazy things. They're starving. She knew that on after she, she was there a little while, she knew on the Friday afternoon that they would start to get really agitated in their behaviour because she knew and they knew, not because they could articulate it, that on the weekend the drugs hit town, so it's going to be crazy where they live. So they're starting to get angsty, um, so she would find ways of working with them to settle them down, knowing that on Monday all it would get really crazy again when they came to school because they'd been acting out what they had seen or what had happened to them on the weekend. She provided food for them. Now, other people may think this is wrong, but knowing that there was no food in the house, the money was going on drugs because this town has been targeted by the drug dealers. Uh, she kept the kids safe. She would watch the kids' behaviour and uh, there's a story of a little fella who uh, had seen his mother stabbed a number of times, quite a lot of times, and he came into school this day and he'd stolen a knife from a uh, telecom. He had this big knife and he was running around with it. And I would say to her, well, tell me what you did because he's the whole school's gone into lockdown because he's got this big carving knife or this big knife that cuts, you know, cord. What did you do? And I love this story. So she's very calm. The school's in shut down because she has to because she's school principal and he's running around in a frantic energy in the playground with this knife she walks without looking at him she walks a little way away from him and she's walking along gently and she says I always knew you wanted to be a ninja and it kind of pulled him out he was in a dissociated state with this knife he had just seen his mother stab the night before and he stopped enough for her to continue now 
throw, show me how you can throw that knife so it stands up in the ground. And he kind of shook his head a bit because he's still in a slightly dissociated state. And then he threw the knife. Now, if it had been me, I'd have raced over and grabbed the knife. <laughs> she said, you were really good, but you didn't quite do it. Go and pick the knife up and try again. He goes, he throws the knife again. Now, this time he's coming out of his disassociated state and he's starting to engage with her. And he throws it the second time, but it's still kind of leaning over a bit. And she says, you know what? You're going to be a pretty good ninja. I, yeah, I think you've got it. So the first time she just reinforced that he was a great, had the possibility of being a great ninja. The second time when he throws the knife, she says, yeah, but you're not quite there. And then he looks at her now. He's, he's connected to her. And she says, come on, you can do it. I want you to throw that knife so it stands up in the ground. He throws the knife. He's fully engaged. She says, yep, you are a ninja. Now, will you pick the knife up and bring it over to me, please? And he walked over and picked the knife up and gave it to her. Now, I wish that all police knew how to disarm somebody in that way. What it is with her is she, I've said to her, how do you do this? First of all, she's really calm. And she has such deep love for these children, even when they're little rat bags. And then she works out a way that she's not going to confront him, but she's engaging with some part of him here that's thinking enough to hear her words. She also knew him enough to know that he wants to be a ninja. So she, she brought that to his attention. And then she allowed him to disarm himself. Yeah. Every time she called the police or the fire people in to engage with the kids when they got on the roof and were doing bad things, it ended up in a disaster. What is beautiful about uh, this particular teacher and, and lots of teachers actually that work with kids is if, they, if there is a really genuine love and this particular teacher has his saying, so some trees need more water. So just coming from that place and the ability to be calm yourself, as, as mum was talking about, because if you're not calm yourself, you're going to escalate. Yeah. So if you're going to uh, de-escalate a situation, if you're heightened yourself, and we know that just from our interactions with other human beings, if we're going up in energy, then it's just you've just got no chance. With kids, they are smart. So you've got to bring your energy right down and then make that um, connection as Margie did. But, yeah, that, that yeah. concept of love, genuine love and genuine care because they'll see you coming from a mile off and kids have had a, you know, a bit of a hard time. Um, they are incredibly perceptive, remembering they're, you know, they're hypervigilant in the senses around them, so they will pick up BS straight away. Thank you for that, Carly. So in parting, what wisdom would you provide if you're mentoring a non-Aboriginal person? Look, I'm going to say one thing. There's many things, but I think the most important thing is take the time to build real relationships with whoever you're working with um, or walking alongside. That goes for uh, a colleague, yeah. someone that's a client, if that's the, the preferred term, but take the time to build the relationship. Um, you can't rush that. And if you can do that, then ev the safety and everything after that will flow and that will flow naturally. I'm just thinking of kids and I think that we as adults have to get on the floor with kids and play with kids, that we never have a judgment about their behaviour, but inside our head we're saying, What's behind this behaviour? This behaviour is telling us stories. Be prepared then to follow those stories. Be prepared to be the growly lion with them. Be prepared to be the snake crawling across the floor and pretending with them. Um, 
kind of it takes you out of being that that kind of big adult who think, mm. thinks they know everything. You know, I love how Bruce Perry talks about sitting alongside the child on the floor where she's been in a distress situation and he's drawing and she's drawing and then finally when she's ready, she starts to talk to him and he starts to talk to her. That applies to communities as well. It applies to children in schools. It applies, I would change the education system so we gave teachers the capacity to be the growly line with the child as the child is getting rid of all of the energy that's gone in over the evening when dad's come home drunk or something or things aren't so good. The other thing that I would be doing is letting people know, and universities have got to change, I'll say by that, but letting people know that actually if they're willing to get down at the level of where it's happening, um, they've got all of the tools they need in themselves. Don't be frightened of making mistakes. Mistakes we made make are our best learning. Um, so keep making the mistakes when you're on the floor with the kid being that whatever, the snake, the graily or whatever. But also know your theory to your practice. Know the theory back to front and inside out. So when you hit with a situation that's kind of like you don't know how the hell you're going to get out of it, your mind just clicks back into the safety of the theory. This is happening here now. And if I stay with this story, we're going to get to where we need to go because I trust that child. I trust that person. They know where they need to go, but they've never been given permission to do this. We're in the most massive change process. We've just had the fires, fire, anger, like cleansing country. Amazing. And then we've had water. Water, grief, you know, cleaning. Uh, regenerating and things like that. I believe, totally from being an old woman who's a bit grumpy, that we're in a major change process. Indigenous peoples have the answers to not just the Australian nation, but around the world when we come together. And we need to, with respect, listen and learn from each other. We have the capacity to heal this country in a truth-telling. And it's not a truth-telling telling driven by government in our own communities, on the ground, when we start listening to our kids, to our grannies, their, their kids, and then our little kids today, we know that this country has failed. The first peoples of this country, and Australians generally, we're talking about all sorts of other people as well, the, the forgotten generations, the establishment, you know, the, the removal of children, the prisons, we're just building more prisons. I just wanna say it again, we have a major capacity an amazing capacity to change this country. We were established as a penal colony at 1788. Those prison hogs brought into this country all of the trauma, all of the pain, all of the distress that came out of England from the prisons there and the Marines and the others that came and others came after that from different parts of the world with their trauma. So they've brought their trauma into this country and we're the ones that are holding it and we're hurting ourselves as we hold it. If we do a truth-telling, country, community, family by family, and then looked for the healing ways that we can work together, we can change this country. If you gave me a magic wand right now, what I would do is I would go down to all of the young people in our communities, each one of them separately, and I'd say, listen, I want you to put a play on for me. I'm just going to give you a theme. The theme could be, uh, the Wizard of Oz, or it could be 
uh, Australia past, present and future. Let's call it Australia past, present and future. I want you to put this play on and we're going to get all the community to come and watch after you put this play on. You've got to make a song. You've got to do a dance. You've got to do your costumes. But you're the people who've got, you, you, your group, your, your teenage group, have got to put the play together. So then you run it for that community and they will be as raw and as hard as you could possibly think. I've seen that, you know. I had. And then they put behind the screen, a flimsy screen, the, behind that in this play, they acted out the parents fighting and what the kids saw. What I would do once I'd done that in this place, I would have all of these others and then I would put on in a region those plays so everybody watched it. And then they would take it down to the capital cities or the, the districts and have everybody watch them. And so all the kids were telling us, all the young people were telling us, past, present and future Australia. What is it we want? And then I would bring them together in Canberra and I would make the politicians watch these plays by our kids to give them a voice on where they want to go past, present and future. Thank you for joining us in our podcast series listening to stories of healing. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.